After the rain, the sun will come out. Today we're going to be doing a podcast and Aaron Johnson is going to be addressing topics from dealing with the responsibility of seeing blackness to shelter privilege to disparities of health in black community on down to understanding how white people can listen with their heart, soul, and privilege to black distress. So, uh, here we go. Let's get started. So, um, Aaron Johnson, well, why don't you kind of start off by telling us a little bit about uh, this work and what you are desiring to do in holistic resistance? The critical role of holistic resistance is to just remember that we get to resist all the time. It's not a weekend job. It's not something we do on uh, parts of our week. We get to do this all the time. And so for me, holistic resistance speaks a lot to the privilege dynamics in which we get to fight for our freedom, we get to fight for our minds, we get to fight for all the things that we want to see. This becomes a part of our life. So every part of ourself identifies a system, not a person, but a system that has impacted every part of our own lives, every part of how we live, how we, how we just choose our companions, where we live, um, how much money we can make. It's not a part of an African heritage that hasn't been influenced or touched or impacted in a negative way by white supremacy. And so racism and white supremacy and white privilege is that dynamic that I like to deal with. I like to unpack. And that's what I want to unpack throughout this podcast, but also throughout the holistic resistance movement. Yeah, no, that, that makes complete sense. So um, let, let's start off with, you know, me and, me and Aaron were uh, having discussion around this concept of how, um, of how privilege is something that white people aren't quite um, understanding the levels of privilege and how there are so many different opportunities and options that they get off of privilege. So Aaron, you, we were talking about this idea of being able to help white people listen and learn how to listen with their heart, soul, and privilege. Why do you also add the word privilege in the concept of white people listening? Well, privilege is a perspective. It's a perspective of how we uh, see the world or walk in the world. Uh, white privilege manifests itself in a thousand ways. But one of the things I really want to highlight in this um, acknowledge is that as I sit here, and analyze white people listening, I find that white people tend to listen with the, with the feeling. It's almost like if, if somebody says, you know, I'm going to uh, tell you a story. And you might go, and, and, and I'm excited to hear the story. It's a great story. And they tell you the story. You go, that was great. I thank you for telling that story. And you kind of heard it, and it was great. And if someone said, you know, I'm going to tell you that same story, 
but you need to understand this story completely because if you don't understand this story your life depends upon you knowing the story you listen to it differently and I think white privilege they listen to stories but their life doesn't depend upon it at least the perception is their life doesn't depend upon it and to me that's where I think the punchline is of white privilege when it comes to they don't listen to black people black people listen to the story of white supremacy and racism in America and we memorize how to interact with white people how to navigate and code switch we understand that our life and our livelihood depends upon it but white people are not obligated or really motivated from their privileged perspective to listen to blackness and the narrative of blackness because they have the options of opting out. They have the options and privilege because their life does not depend upon it. So, you know, I, I, I look at those scenarios and I realize that it's, it's easy for white people to opt out of this material and not see the urgency of it. Because by the time white privilege can really see the magnitude and the urgency of the sixth system, by that time, it's too late. So the urgency is for them to get it before it's too late for humanity, before the sixth system destroys itself. Because white supremacy is a self-collapsing process, but it collapses on top of people of color, on top of people that are not white first, and then it starts to collapse on white people. And by the time we get to that last stage of collapsing on white people, um, it's one of the situations they might not even notice until it's the last kind of death throes of our culture and humanity. You also mentioned that privilege is an earplug. Can you elaborate a little bit on when you say that privilege is an earplug, what that means? Uh, privilege and earplug is exactly kind of going off that last story I shared about listening when your life depends upon it and listening as like that was entertaining that was a great weekend uh, the earplug is that white people can always hit a button of privilege and I know this is confusing because a lot of people say well I'm a poor white person I grew up in the hood I grew up in an environment that was rough where's my privilege um, and I want to respect the fact that people of, of white uh, skin can have hardship too but what's unique about that narrative is that regardless of what your economic status is, there's this amazing nest, um, um, uh, amazing container is probably a better word to use, that America is, that still gives you much more flexibility, much more uh, uh, freedom, and much more access to resource, or the potential access to resource, and, uh, and, and the lack of historical trauma that you do not carry, that an African heritage person will carry. So yes, I think the earplugs come from the, the, the white people realizing that this thing is a big deal. And I hear a lot of white people will tell me, they'll say, well, I just, I feel like it's so big and it's so tall and racism is so deep. I just can't do anything about it. So I'm not going to do anything. That conversation, that piece right there, I think is what speaks to a lot of the earplugs is that they feel that because something's hard, because something's big, because something's been around for a period of time, that these are all reasonable excuses to not do anything, to be complacent. And that, to me, is an earplug. If you think you have a privilege because something's hard to not participate, if you think something's a, it's, a, it's a privilege 
if you think that you can look at something and say, oh, I, you know, this is, I can't do this, you know, this is too hard, it, it, it's so tall, I mean, people that were, you know, in the last 30 years have tried and they have failed, why, I, I'll stop doing it. But think that that's a reason to stop fighting, to stop thinking well, to stop being access to your free mind, to stop creating a world that everyone has equal opportunity to resource, that tells me right there that your ears are plugged from privilege. That privilege says, it's not my problem. Privilege says, it's somebody else going to take care of it. Privilege says, why am I going to risk my good life? When I didn't choose this, I was born into this. When you think about you know, listening to what you're saying around this idea of earplugs and having the option of being able to say, you know, this is this is not my problem, right? Well, the, the, the other concept is options. What, how does options and white privilege, you know, coincide with one another? You know, one of the things is that when you think about privilege in America, specifically, I observe kind of the history or the lack of documentation history of the magnitude of what actually happened. Um, I think when you think about uh, options, uh, I, I really think about historical options uh, that were set in, set, of set in place before I arrived. Um, when I think about like my personal life, or how I was raised, I realize my skin tone that I am African heritage enough that my skin tone is darker than most that are white. And I also realize that with that, I have limited options for employment. I have limited, more limited options around my safety, around police officers. I have limited options on every aspect of my American experience. I have less options simply because of my skin color. Even though I have much more options than 1950s and 60s, it's still a noticeable difference. I think one of the things also around options is I spent a lot of time, 15 years of my life, in a future farms of America, four years in high school and 10 years as an assistant choir director. And one thing that's very clear, and right now I'm in a car driving through Northern California, is when I look at the food production in the United States, California, and Pacific United States, food production has been something California has been leading the country in for years. Food production in California is massive. And what's interesting is that if you look at food production, the ag industry is one of the largest industries in the United States. What we sneak about it is that there's a specific responsibility or relationship between land ownership and agriculture industry. And look at the disparity between what white people own around our food. You realize that white people control the agriculture industry, control our food flow, and control every major part of the American experience. This is, it, it sits right on the lap of options. If you're a white person in America, you are part of that heritage. What's unique about that, that kind of painful truth around agriculture specifically, is that African Americans 
directly are the ones that made that system work. We built it from scratch off of uh, being forced into slavery to post-production of being field workers and sharecroppers for many years after post-slavery. So we look at like the, the, the free labor, the free access that white privilege has created that creates an innate option for white people. It's not even close. We're not talking about the housing industry and how they got redlined by the government, but you'll realize that this system has been set up to give white men options. And they'll do all they can to hang on to those options because you got the dollar and the resource and the capitalist structure says that makes sense. Along those lines, you also mentioned this concept of white people being able to use their privilege to, um, there's two, two things I want you to touch on right now, which is having the option, and you kind of already touched on it, which was the idea of them having the option of feeling fatigued and being able to use um, feeling fatigue as an excuse to be able to opt out of um, dealing with these challenges. So I want to kind of uh, have you speak a little bit on how fatigue and white people using their privilege to take that fatigue to then press their other privilege, which is the, the opt-out button. And um, yeah, talk talk a little bit about that. You know, I have a lot of little words and phrases that kind of describe what I see and witness when I interact with white people and teach workshops and try and encourage them to think outside of their privilege and slow down their privilege. If you can't even think outside of it, just to slow it down enough to recognize the the damage it does to us African people. Um, and what's significant about that is that there's this idea of fatigue because it gave them a, a little observation for black women about self-care and how self-care was something that wasn't taking place for black women. They worked hard, pushed hard, and their health suffered because of it. Um, and what I found was as white women and white people had all kinds of self-care routines that African heritage people did not have options for. If you think about a lot of my ancestors, I think of my grandpa Chandler, my mother's side, my mother's father, and he talked about how he worked many, many hours as a field worker and how he only ate like a sweet potato for lunch and he would eat it while he's out working. Like in the field, he would, he would pick his lunch break was basically him stopping in the field long enough to eat a sweet potato. Um, he had several sweet potatoes that were baked, wrapped in foil and stuffed in his little sack as he went and worked. And the Chandlers were known, as my mom's side of the family, Chandlers, for being excellent workers. They were celebrated. If you're gonna pick and work in the field, it was the Chandlers, you were gonna work harder than you probably ever have in your life. And the Chandlers were known to being the uh, elite force of field workers. Well, that methodology uh, kind of echoes a lot of the idea of it. It eliminates the option of being tired. It eliminates the option of being hurt. It eliminates the option of having any kind of damage to your body because you don't have that option. You were celebrated for being wounded, being hurt, and getting up and working for the man one more day. That was a celebration. And that is a distress pattern. So I inherited this family structure on both sides of my family of, of laborers that knew and encouraged extremely hard work. Self-care hit our family nowhere growing up. Well, what, is that, what does that feel like on the opposite side of white privilege? 
when I look at white privilege, I oftentimes hear white people go, oh my goodness, those hours are too long. Oh, that's too difficult. You need a break. You need a raise. And they're coming from a white perspective. They have no idea that the white oppressive system we've been raised in, not only internalized material we've grown up in, but for black people to get ahead in things, they don't get ahead by doing self-care properly. That's how white people get ahead. So when you translate into getting closeness to blackness, or when you get a, a, you know, dismantling racism, you see white people going, oh my goodness, how can I do this and have all my self-care routines in place and keep myself feeling safe and keep myself feeling good? And oftentimes you'll find that when you look at those ideas of white privilege, that they'll look at this and say, I can't do it because the hours are too long. The sacrifice seems too. Is there, is there, a, is there a safer and more comfortable way take on this nasty material that we've been spewing on black culture for a long time if there's not a safer and more like cushioned way to do this then I don't want to do it it doesn't seem fair, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem right and so they have several buttons that white people love to press and one of them is the opt out button they opt out, they come in the weekends they may go to weekend protests but they opt out back to their privilege and I want to be clear here that I'm not saying that white people cannot um, take care of themselves and cannot um, acknowledge their limitations. They should, but I find that their limitations are based more on them being comfortable and less on them finding out if they can push a little bit harder, if they can stay in a fight a little bit longer. And I oftentimes find that white people that slow it down find out it's not just a little bit longer, a little bit farther. They can go a lot farther and a lot longer than they currently are. And so for me, the sacrifices of white people and the sacrifice of resource dis disparity in our country, it really is dependent upon independently white people in their own hearts and minds realizing that they're not even scratching the surface of how much work, investment, and thinking they need to do to really reach for blackness in a meaningful way. And that, yes, you might have to give up one or two of your nice vacations to Hawaii, but I guarantee you will survive and the world you live in will get a little bit better. kind of already have touched on this idea but I, I would love to hear you uh, you know elaborate a little bit more about how uh, white privilege utilizes the weaponization of time yeah so yeah if you can elaborate more on that topic uh this topic is a huge topic and I probably will have to come visit this a couple more times as I get used to like wrapping my heart and mind around the magnitude of this but one of the things that talk about push yourself a little farther, a little longer, one thing that comes up for me is that white people think I don't have the time. I don't have the time. And I think what's important about that is interesting how stingy white people get around their time when they have to use it themselves. When they have to expend their own time, it becomes gold. But when a person of color has to work extra time to manage their distress patterns and carry white people's distress patterns, white people are always, no, you can do it. I appreciate it. I have gratitude. But when it's time for white people to use their own time, they get stingy and chunk. Because I find that white people are really the inventors of time as we know it, of weaponizing it, saying time is money and money is time. That concept may be been set by whoever, but the belief in the system behind that money is time is an opt-out button that's so massive that I hear, I see it pressed more than anything else. 
I don't have time. This stuff is so it's so hard. Six hours of your workshop, is that how much time it takes? Oh my goodness. It's a, it's a narrative I hear. And so when I say time is money, what it comes down to is a white person has to kind of slow down their stuff enough and go, look, I have made time a, a value of money. And one thing I've realized from the inception of this country, that white people have never valued people, and specifically black people, more than they value money. Money has always been more valuable than black people. And as long as it's a concept in our capitalist structure, you'll find white people stumbling again and again and again. Because it makes them more money to lock us up in prison. It makes us more money to not educate us. It makes them more money to make sure our families are divided and our communities are underfunded. They make a ton of money off of these structures. So as soon as they believe that African heritage lives matter more than their pocketbooks, you'll see a, a quick and swift collapse of the system as we know it. You, you made this, um, this statement that I thought was really powerful and I, I would love uh, for you to, you know, kind of like talk more on this, especially for, for white people, sometimes it's hard for them to understand that they, they look at it as I'm simply just trying to make a living. I'm simply just trying to uh, get a paycheck as well. But what they don't understand is the magnitude of how much money has defined, you know, what they are willing and not willing to do when it comes to supporting black lives as a whole. So I, I want to state the statement that you made and you can kind of like talk more on it. You said time is money. In the context of white people, black people are never going to be more valuable than money. So I'll say that one more time. Time is money. And in the context of white people, black people are never going to be more valuable than money. I think, I think what's important here is, is unpack this and autopsy this philosophy a little bit farther is when you look at slow down um, the, the wealth disparity there's a concept that says I will I want to create more resource any means necessary we don't care who we have to enslave we don't care who we have to hurt we don't care who we have to kill we want to get more 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 resource at cheaper cheaper cost and what's significant about that is that when I look at the landscape of race in America and I look at the landscape of oppression in America I also can look at the, the agreements that white people have made with each other and themselves and that is when we're put on blast when we're highlighted about our material around race and how we're hurting people we always smother it, oftentimes smother it, not with just words, but an entire system, an entire government structure that says, let's set things up to benefit white people. And so we get to hide behind, this is the law. It cracks me up recently, we just legalized weed. I think of all the hundreds of thousands of dollars that's been spent tracking and, and arresting and marginalizing people of color primarily, 
for weed. Now what's unique is now weed is legal, which oftentimes expresses that if it was legal now, the people that are locked up are locked up for a, a crime that doesn't exist anymore. And there's been no attempt or even thought to release the young black people mostly that have been arrested for participating in activity that's now legal. Not even a reduced sentence. These aren't necessarily violent criminals. What we'll find is that, oh, well, that was a law when they were locked up. But you got to understand it easily could not have been a law when they were locked up. You can also realize that this is something that was demonized specifically to find one more thing to lock up black people about. So now that we have people smoking everywhere, and it's now a legal system, I just now simply realize that, that there's no attempt to actually making this uh, uh, access to uh, resource uh, the real conversation is not going to take place. And these things seem like um, common common sense, follow the logic ideas. But for white people, the law says in 1995, you can get so many years of sentences for a drug now that's legal. And we're not going to change that, even though we probably were wrong in our law historically. We're making a ton of money off the free labor, off of the prison system, in which a black person is not about the weed. It's about the system that white people love to set up, that's simply set up to benefit them the most. And that, to me, it comes down to where time and actual change have an explosion as we hide behind massive systems like government structures and laws. The justice system has wasted so much time of black bodies locked away because I oftentimes will sit here, just like, you know, it's a good example where time is money. I work in a group called Turn It Up Now. And I'll sit down with a young family, and a young boy is about 12 years old, and I'll say, um, I want to support this young man. I want to get him on, his right, on the right path. I want to help his anger challenges. I want to invest in him. I want to give him a skill. I want to mentor him for life. And people are like, ah, don't know if I want to fund that. I don't know if there's... It's just one young black man. I mean, we really want to help like 30 of them after school for an hour. I don't know about one young black man. All that energy put to one young black man, right? How much is that going to cost? Well, we could probably do it for $1,000 a month. What? That's kind of a lot of money. $1,000 a month? I don't know. That's $12,000 a year. I mean, that's a lot of money. Money, money, time, time, energy, energy. It's all that critiques it for one young black man, right? Now, that same young black man does not get my support. Maybe he goes on to his neighborhood and someone says, hey, man, I want you to deal some drugs. No one says nothing much about it. The laws are very kind of quiet. Wait, what you get involved with it? Matter of fact, the government has helped sing crack into these communities. And perpetual. So now this young man gets a little bit of drugs on his hand and now he gets addicted. Maybe he gets addicted. Maybe he gets involved and he gets a weapon. And he gets pressured into going in and robbing a store. He goes to the store and rob it robs the store, in the process of robbing the store, he fires the weapon. Now, that one bullet hits somebody. It could be someone that goes to the store, somebody that's in the employment store, doesn't matter, someone's hit. Let's say they survive the hit, but they're wounded in a very serious way. Now, let's slow it down now. They didn't want to spend any energy to help support a young black man when he was 12 or 5. They didn't want to spend any time when he was 12 or 5. $12,000 seemed like a lot. But now they discharge one bullet 
the ambulance are called. That thousand dollars a month is very cheap. That surgery for that person that was shot, twelve thousand dollars is very cheap. Now the young black man's on the run. He's out the door. He's down the street. Maybe he's in a getaway car. The amount of manpower, helicopters, police officers to come and try and find that young black man through the roof, amount of cost per hour. Thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And they're willing to pay that money and pay that money and spend that money at, at a whim, at a bleak of an eye. All that could have been prevented if we simply invested and made structures in place to allow the cost of support for that young man before he even got to that point of firing that weapon. Now, I'm not going to go into details about should he have the weapon or gun laws or he should have known better. Well, that's a whole other discussion. But it's shocking to me how fast we'll put a million dollars on a young black body to lock him up, to chase him down, to gun him down. But when it's time to give him some money or investment for education, resources, and skill building and self-esteem healing from all the internalized racism, white folks can't be found. And that right there speaks a lot to how time and money has been weaponized as a system to dismantle and destroy young black bodies. After the rain, the sun will come out.
crying He is dying for your love All alone in a booth of his own With no one there to drive him home I say, oh my Lord, oh my God Can you save us so tonight now After the rain, after the pain After the storm, the sun will come out Yeah.